Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. strange saga of TV, film, and recording star Jussie Smollett began with the report of an assault on January 29th, 2019. According to Jussie, two men accosted him as he walked back to his apartment at 2 a.m. on a frigid night in downtown Chicago, taunting him with gay and racial slurs, beat and punched him in the face, looped a lynching noose around his neck and poured bleach on him, then ran off into the night. Jussie refused treatment and didn't want to call police, but a worried friend did. Officers arrived, talked to Jussie, made a report, and escorted him to the hospital for treatment and observation. Jussie made no public statement, but someone at the Chicago police did, alerting media contacts of the attack on Jussie Smollett in downtown Chicago. And the news went viral before dawn. The incident drew national attention, outrage at the hate crime and concern for Jussie. But a week later, Chicago police dropped a bombshell. They had changed the target of their investigation from the alleged attackers to Jussie himself as perpetrator of a hoax. Public sentiment flipped from sympathy to suspicion then contempt when prosecutors closed the case in a quiet agreement with Jussie's lawyers. But on February 11, 2020, after the case had been reopened with a special prosecutor, Jussie Smollett was indicted by a Cook County grand jury on six counts of lying to police and making false police reports, all fourth-degree disorderly conduct charges. Jussie refused to change a word of his story, and he pled innocent. The trial began in November 2021, and on December 9th, after dramatic courtroom confessions by the Darrow brothers and defiant testimony by Jussie, the jury found him guilty of five of the six counts. Sentencing is scheduled for March 10th, 2022. In these divisive times, it seems like the American people can't reach consensus agreement on anything except one, that Jussie Smollett is guilty. The confident statements of Chicago police and prosecutors, compliant news media coverage, and the devastating confessions of the admitted co-conspirators 
put Jussie in the bullseye. Guilty. It was a hoax. He planned it, and he did it. With the brothers, just for reasons unknown. Since that time, independent investigative reporters started digging into the case. They filed Freedom of Information Act requests and unearthed stunning new evidence that raises alarming questions about testimony, police and judicial conduct, and the verdict in the case that need to be answered. These questions need to be answered. We're pleased to have with us today independent investigative reporter Shelley Stanley from Maine, highly respected investigative reporter. Shelley was one of the first to dive the deepest into the Jussie Smollett case, and we want to hear from Shelley the new evidence she may have uncovered. Shelley? Yeah, thanks for having me. Did I miss anything uh, really important to the case there, Shelley? Well, I mean, as far as what the public already knows, I think that's all covered, but as far as what the public doesn't know, a well, lot not, was not mentioned. <laughs> well, we're going to get into that right now. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I hope uh, people, uh, you're welcome to call friends or neighbors and tell them, hey, you really should listen to this because the information uncovered by Shelley Stanley, and frankly, I don't know how she did it. It's a, such an amazing piece of investigative work. It turns this whole trial and this whole case on its head. So, Shelley, if you want, let's get to it. Um, sure. Okay, there, are, there appear to be witnesses and videos that were never introduced at the trial that seem to completely corroborate Jussie's report and his claim of being an innocent victim. And exactly. Tell us how you found these videos and made contact with the witnesses, and if you can, also tell us why they weren't involved or present at the trial. I found the videos by reading the police reports. Um, the police had given the reports to the media and generally the public. You can read them online. And I read through them and noticed that there were several reports saying that there were witnesses who reported white men at the scene and that there were videos of these white suspects who were running from the scene. I eventually FOIA'd, I sent a Freedom of Information Act request to the Chicago Police Department and got the videos. And so now many people have seen them, including uh, Tom, I think you've seen them. Um, And so these videos basically show someone coming up behind Jesse and then the camera turning off. Then the suspects run away after the attack and run by a guard at the Sheraton Hotel who is a a witness. Um, They continue running, and they eventually get into a taxi outside of the Hilton or the Hyatt Hotel. And so the guard, um, I've never made contact with the guard, but he did actually testify at the court. He came there, and he said that the man who ran by him was six feet tall, masked, and white, and that the second man blocked his face so that the guard could not see the second man's face. He told this to CPD as well right after the attack, um, within three days of the attack, and it's written in the police reports. But what he also said at court, which was astounding, was that he was threatened and pressured by the special prosecutor's office to change his story. And they pressured and threatened him for hours 
to change his story and say that the person who ran by him was black and not white. And he refused to do that, and he went in court and said what he saw, which was what he told the police right after the attack, that the man was six feet tall, masked, and white. And then he pointed to the person who had threatened him, and that is Sean Weber from the special prosecutor's office. So this was a huge bombshell in court. It wasn't reported very widely. Fox News did report it several times. The New York Times, for example, never reported at all that he was threatened. The media was very mixed in whether they would even share this with the public at all. But obviously, many people in the public did not hear about this huge bombshell revelation in court. And there's also another witness that is a neighbor of Jesse's, and she said she went out to walk her dog about an hour and a half before the attack and saw a strange man who was white with a rope hanging out of his pocket standing outside the building, and she told police that he was appearing to be waiting for something, and he made her so uncomfortable that she just immediately went back inside. And she did tell that to the police the next day after the attack, This is also in the police reports is where I saw it. The police also did not tell the public about this at all. In fact, they told us in the public that they didn't find anything from the scene. They started saying, we have all these surveillance cameras, but none of them seem to have recorded any suspects that match Jesse's description. And so people in the public started getting very confused and thinking, well, if the police can't find anything, you know, maybe Jesse is making this up. Now we know the police were completely lying, that they had immense evidence. The most kind of shocking thing to me is that as the man, as the men continue running from the scene of the attack and eventually get into the taxi, as I mentioned, outside the Hyatt Hotel, they come on screen, on, on camera, full-on camera. It's not a grainy surveillance camera. It's like you can see it full in color, and you can actually see who they are. And the first man that you see come on film looks to be in his 40s, receding hairline, um, and he's white, like a heavy set guy, a big guy. And then the second man is wearing all black. You can't see his face, and he's the one that both the guard and Jesse told police was six feet tall, masked, and white. So both men are white. And then there's also a man in a white car who starts following them. You can see it on the surveillance film. He starts following them and he drives by them as they get into the taxi. He's also white. So there's three white men that you can see involved with each other. But the two people who ran from the scene of the attack are both white. And they are the exact same body descriptions that Jesse gave the police. One is tall and skinny. The other one is slightly shorter and more heavyset, stockier. Um, but they're both white. They're not the Osendario brothers. Shelley, I want to stop here for a second for an aside because we want to have a really good footing and be very specific here about everything. Have you known Jesse Smollett? For a while, or have you ever met Jesse Smollett before this happened? No, not at all. I didn't know who he was. I don't, you know, I'm not a big celebrity person or a TV watcher, so I had never even heard of him before this happened. Well, Jesse might be sorry you don't even know who he was, but 
I, I think that's... Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know a lot of people, so it's not just him. <laughs> but I think it's important that we clarify, are you friends with anyone in the Smollett family? It's a big family. Right. No, as I said, I didn't know any of them. This was something that I got involved in because I was so alarmed by the fact that the public quickly believed every word of the Chicago Police Department and were then incited to uh, hate someone who I could see was, was likely innocent. And that just alarmed me. It just didn't seem to me to be a good direction to be going in, which is why I put in all this energy to try to figure out what actually happened. I could see right in the police reports that they found a lot of evidence from the scene. Huge red flag. Uh, Shelley, I want to go further there and confirm, uh, did anyone hire you? to do this investigation? Did anyone contact you and say, hey, we really need an investigation here and we're happy to pay you for your good work? But did that happen? Not at all. I, I did all of this for free, 100% hours, hundreds, probably hundreds of hours of investigation and writing and documenting. Um, and it's been an incredible struggle to get it published. All of it is published in independent media, um, which is great, but nobody in any mainstream media, corporate media, were, would touch it. They did not want anything that showed any suspicion on the Chicago Police Department or that questioned their account. So, no, 100% for free, all of this. And as I said, like, my motivation is the truth and help protect society from going down a path that is very avoidable. To me, that's very uh, disconcerting and puzzling. I don't think it's any secret that the Chicago police, and you can comment on this, Chicago police have, I'm going to say, at least a hundred-year history of severe corruption and problems within the police force, dating all the way back to the Al Capone era, including a major scandal recently that may not be unrelated to this case. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. <laughs> Yeah. Would you like so, yeah, to comment on that? not unrelated at all. Um, and what case are we talking about? The Laquan McDonald case, which is a case of a young man, boy really, he was 16 years old, who was shot 16 times by uh, an officer in Chicago. And then the department, the mayor, the city officials, everyone tried to cover it up. And it took an incredible amount of energy to get the, the video out the public and to get the truth out to the public. So in a huge scandal of uh, covering up their own corruption and racism. So that scandal actually brought about the end of Rahm Emanuel and the police superintendent and many other things, right? So they were in this huge scandal of legitimacy, all the city officials. Although even if the federal government had to step in. Right. The federal government, yeah, put them under a federal consent decree, which they're under till this day, a court order being very carefully watched to comply and to come into compliance and stop violating people's constitutional rights, operating with blatant racism against the community as per the federal government. A huge scandal. And the Jesse Smollett case actually started um, very soon after Jason Van Dyke was who was the officer who shot the child, Laquan McDonald, he was sentenced to 
six and a half years in prison, despite being found guilty by a jury of his peers of murder, of 16 counts of, of murder. He was sentenced to only six and a half years in jail. And then another judge sentenced the three police officers who appear to have covered up the crime in their police reports to nothing. They were just let off as though they didn't do anything wrong. The Justice Smollett headlines and relentless headlines began less than two weeks after that. And suddenly, with a switch of the hat or whatever, the Chicago Police Department, Rahm Emanuel, city officials were portraying themselves as saviors of the public. The police department was suddenly a great police department, extremely skilled police department. Rahm Emanuel cared about the truth and was fighting for the truth to protect Chicago. And the city officials had no blemishes on them whatsoever. You know, they were doing this for Chicago, even though they were just like the bane of Chicago's existence two weeks before. So it was extremely interesting to me to, to watch this happen and, and to watch them do these press conferences and speak about the case as though every word they were saying was true and that Jesse was absolutely guilty, even though he had not been to trial. I mean, if the mayor comes out against you and says you're 100% guilty before you even go to trial, your rights are violated. The public's being incited against you in this country. It's, it's actually illegal. Right. And we should also mention here that uh, that all worked out very well for the Chicago Police Department. It kind of burnished their tarnished reputation and uh, helped to uh, alleviate the pressure on the police and the mayor, all because of a case that looked like a hate crime at first, but thanks to the police, we found out, no, no, this was just a hoax, just a hoax on the people of Chicago and uh, something where the police could say, hey, you thought that was a racist hate crime? No, 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 thanks to the police, we found out, no, that's just not true. I'd like to hear your opinion, Shelley, about why the media was so cooperative in this. With Jesse Smollett, we have a young, a successful actor. He's been acting in movies, TV, film, singing, dancing, multi-talented performer, very popular, at the very top of his game. He was uh, one of the stars and quickly becoming the leading star of the hit show Empire, co-starring Terrence Howard and several others, very high in the ratings. And uh, Jesse also is known as a philanthropist, a fighter for the causes he believes in, including against racism, against homophobia, a supporter of many other unrelated causes. And at the same time, he has a lifelong reputation. He's not a, a publicity hound. He likes to stay under the radar. He's a very private person as a black and gay man in America today. Jussie didn't seek the limelight once he was off camera. And all of a sudden, he's a terrible person 
a liar and a trickster. Why do you think the media bought that in a day? I mean, I think that's an amazing question and something to be long analyzed to protect ourselves and the public from being uh, incited um, by the media. You know, what I can say is that one of the reasons that I can see very clearly for their doing this, they never questioned the Chicago police, which is their job. The Chicago police are the other party in this. The Chicago police say that Jesse lied to them. So the Chicago police department should be questioned. You know, we should very carefully look at their reputation. We should question their investigation. We should look at the detectives involved in this case and question them. And so the media, unfortunately, did not do their job at all. They didn't question the police. They were acting as kind of authoritarian. I did find information in the police reports, and I did find information about the backgrounds of the officers, which is incredibly troubling, as well as these videos, (laughs) which show other suspects altogether. And I've reached out, I can't even tell you, to how many journalists, how many media outlets, including independent media, international media, corporate media, media on the right. And no, as you can see, nobody has published the information. So because the public is not having an outcry about this, people in the media, I think, don't want to be the first to stick their necks out and say that, you know, to go against the Chicago Police Department and the powerful people in Chicago. We want to also mention for public interest, we plan to feature a number of podcasts in the Jussie podcast series, and this is the first one, and we expect to have at least one more with you, Shelley, and then others to follow, because we think the public deserves to know all possible facts that raises many questions, and I'll mention some of them right now. Why would the police invest thousands of man hours in a case that was essentially a fourth-degree felony for filing a false police report. Although there were six charges, the charges were virtually identical. Filing a false report, filing a false report, lying to a police officer, lying to a detective, filing a false report. If we prosecuted everyone that ever filed a false police report or lied to a police officer, we would spend the next hundred years building prisons. Uh, That baffles me. And another thing that I find very intriguing is why did they have to put 38 detectives and supervisors on this case while at the same time in their own records, which were mandated to be kept and open to the public about police misconduct by the federal government court order, why do we find that of those 38 detectives and supervisors, they faced combined misconduct allegations, according to your investigation, Shelley, 563 misconduct allegations against the officers working on Jussie Smollett's case. Do you have any idea why that would be? Why they have so many allegations. Yes, and why, um, it, why it's these officers that are on this case... And they look to be, I hope there's not another 38 detectives on the Chicago police 
with another 563 misconduct allegations. I mean, how did this all happen? Right. Unfortunately, there are a lot of police officers in Chicago PD that have a lot of allegations. I saw one guy who has 76 himself. And he's still, um, he's still a police officer? The major- What's that? Is he still a police officer? He is. He was promoted. <laughs> yeah. But the majority of the officers don't have any allegations. But then the officers that have them have a lot. Tend they to tend have, to have a multiple. Lot, and they're not disciplined for what they're doing. I don't know why they're not disciplined, but it makes sense to me that if you have a few misconduct mm-hmm. allegations, they'll tend to mount up over time. Uh, Shelly, we, we want to cover some of the key elements of the case that turned it from Jussie as a hate crime victim to Jussie as perpetrator of a hoax. And I think the most important of those would have to be the Osendero brothers. And a little background, one of the Osendero brothers was the personal trainer to Jussie, had been for some time. Jussie used the personal trainer, as many actors do, often to get in shape for roles or upcoming performances or whatever. And that's how Mr. Osendero was employed on occasion by Jussie. The brothers are from Nigeria. They live in Chicago, at least it appears they live in Chicago, or there, although there's some complexities there. But I would have to say for most people in the country that followed the case, uh, the key item that led them to believe, oh, well, this case is over. That's it. Well, what else is there to, to hear? When the Osendero brothers confessed, they confessed to being co-conspirators with Jussie. They were the two villains pretend villains who attacked Jussie as the three of them planned in the middle of the night. And it was one of the coldest nights in the last many years in Chicago in the very early morning hours. The Osendero brothers confessed, I believe, on the stand under oath in court. And for so many people, time to turn off the TV. Okay, what else do we have to know? There's your confession. How can you explain the Osendero brothers confessing to what you believe is something they didn't do. I know it seems complicated uh, because why would someone confess to something they didn't do, um, putting themselves at risk? But the thing to remember is, again, the videos do not show the Osendero brothers. They show white men. And CPD had those videos and several witnesses within three days of the attack. I want to stop right there just for a second, Shelley. Uh, because mm-hmm. I want to emphasize that this is about 2.30 in the morning, thereabouts, in late January, when it's about, I, I think with the chill factor, it's like 10, 15 below in Chicago. There's hardly anyone on the streets. There's hardly any cars on the streets, and certainly very, very few people walking around. Jussie had left his apartment a short walk to a nearby subway, to grab a snack and walk back to his home. On the video, we see the two suspects you mentioned earlier. White men, apparently, the security guard for the Sheraton, taxi or Uber car. You see uh, partially a little bit of the driver. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Very clear. Who You know, they would think it was easy for the police to follow them from the attack to the 
taxi because, like you said, they were the only people there. Right. Okay. Now, uh, Shelley, give us the punchline. Why did the Ossendero brothers confess to something that they were innocent of? They were arrested, and the police at the same time searched their home, kind of tore it apart, um, you know, threw everything around in the home um, when their family members were there. And what they said they found was a cache of illegal arms and drugs, including high-powered tactical weapons, a rifle, shotgun, a Glock 45, a 9mm, countless rounds of ammunition, and also cocaine and heroin. The brothers were in custody at this point, and the police were threatening them with charges, right? The, The police told the public that they had got some suspects that they had in custody. So they're threatening the brothers with charges of attacking Jesse Smollett, even though, as we have already discussed, they had evidence of white men at the scene. Um, And so the brothers were refusing to eat in prison, and in fact, they refused to even drink for the first 24 hours. Had they been arrested? They were were only brought in for questioning, correct? Right. Questioning and they were being held in custody for 48 hours before and they would either be charged or released at the end of that time. Right. So they were being interrogated, um, held in custody. And at the 47th hour, the hour before they would either be charged themselves as the police were threatening or released, they totally changed their story and said that they were the ones who were hired by Jesse to do this hoax. However, before that, they had sent out messages to the public saying that they're baffled about why they're people of interest, and they know the evidence is going to prove them innocent. They send their best to Jesse. That was the message they sent out through their lawyer. However, at the end, they said the story of the Chicago police agreed with it and then were released with no charges themselves. So no charges for the guns, even though uh, the older brother, Ola, is a convicted felon and can't live in a home with guns. No charges for the drugs and no charges for the hoax that they supposedly were involved in. This terrible hoax, according to the police, they have no charges for that even. And so they have instead become the police's star and only witnesses saying that Jesse paid them to do this hoax. You know, we can see that basically they they have been given uh, very special treatment and are the police's star witnesses in in sort of a reward for uh, testifying against Jesse, as it would seem. Shelley, will you allow me to speculate a little bit here and uh, see if you agree with me? Uh, I don't know how the police first heard the names of the Osendero brothers. It wouldn't be too hard because one is fairly closely connected to Jesse as a personal trainer. They ended up going to the Osendero's home with a search warrant, surprise uh, knock on the door. They had to let them in, and as you said, they found a stunning cache of illegal arms and drugs, weapons, ammunition. If I may, can I just guess that the police talked to the Osendero brothers and said, hey, you two, you two are looking at 20, 25 years for the guns and weapons and drug charges plus parole violations, all kinds of things. 
Tell you what, how would you like to confess to being uh, Jesse Smollett's co-conspirators and we'll let you walk? Do you think something like that happened? Definitely. You know, that's the Chicago Police Department is known for that. And so, yeah, given all these all these details, everything you just mentioned, and the fact that the, the real suspects were white and on film, definitely, I think that's exactly what happened. Well, and, and, and you're the investigative reporter, and I have to ask, okay, do you have any evidence to back that up? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been little hints here and there, like there was a, a video of the, while the brothers were being interrogated, they were talking to their lawyer, and this you can see in the Chicago Tribune, there's this audio recording of them sort of discussing some sort of deal <laughs> that the brothers were being kind of coaxed into taking a deal, and the prosecution actually accidentally turned that over to the defense team, and the defense was shocked by what they heard, and they wanted to bring it up in court, but Judge Lynn banned them. He said that that's client attorney privilege, and nobody can talk about that, so nobody has heard that tape. The brothers also, at one point in the summer, I think of 2020, 2020 the brothers still had not gotten their guns back, from the police, and so they actually publicly threatened to stop working with the police. And they said, in fact, that even if they got their guns back, they would not work with the police anymore. They'd been treated terribly by the police, and they refused to testify against Jesse. And this is also in the paper. You can look this up. Um, but what happened was all these kind of legal experts started speaking out in the media, and they said that the brothers have already spoken at the grand jury, and it doesn't matter at this point if they testify or not. And if they don't testify, they can be brought up on charges themselves. So it was kind of, to me, a veiled threat against them. Anyway, the next day, after all this came out of the media and this sort of strange threats, they agreed to cooperate again. And they went through with it all and testified against uh, Jesse. Hey, you know, I have to say that I can't really... Blame the Ossendero brothers all that much because it looks to me like they gave him a terrible choice. Hey, uh, Shelley, I want to thank you for spending so much time with us. And I want to tell everyone that uh, this is only part one, episode one of the Jussie podcast. And that we're going to be back with you with the second episode where we'll talk in depth about the actual trial and what happened, and some of the strange things that happened on the trial. And I want to remind everyone, this is based on the what we have checked and verified as a very high-quality investigative reporting by a highly respected investigative journalist, Shelley Stanley from Maine. Thanks, Shelley. Thank you, Tom. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.